Heavenly Father, we do look to days, better days, Father, when we will be together again. And in the meantime, Father, we ask that you would help us make the most of the time you've given us. That you would help us turn our attention and our questions away from things like, how do we put an end to this? How do we get through this? How do we get beyond this? And instead, Father, give us a heart to ask the question, how do we make the most of this? What do you want us to learn from this? And how do we put this to your glory? And if we ask that question, Father, we pray you give us the answer. In our own way, as we each walk in faith, Father, you show us how to do that in ways that fulfill your purposes in this day and please you. Father, I have to assume that you've brought us to this chapter of Matthew at this particular time because there is something here that relates to what we are facing today. So I ask, Lord, that would be also our heart as we study this morning. We would listen to the Spirit as he explains the Word of God to us with an appreciation that though you wrote this long ago and it's been instructive to your people throughout the ages, perhaps, Father, it was prepared especially for us in this day under our circumstances. And if so, Father, let us not be ignorant, let us not be lazy in our hearing, let us be attentive, and let us be ready to put it to work. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, after a short break, here I am back in our study of the Olivet Discourse, and in particular, we're studying that mysterious future day that Jesus calls the coming of the Lord. Let's revisit the context of where we've been in this discourse. Jesus has already answered the questions that his disciples posed to him after he left the Temple Mount and went up to the Mount of Olives. He's told them about the signs of the end of the age and of his second coming and of the arrival of the kingdom. And then as he answered all those questions and came to the end, he didn't stop. He then goes forward into his explanation of other events that are associated with the end times, events that his disciples didn't ask him about because this was something they had never even heard about. It was a mystery that God wanted to reveal to them through Jesus now in this moment. And the revelation of this mysterious day comes in three stages in scripture. It starts here in Matthew 24 as Jesus introduces it now in the Olivet Discourse. And then just a few hours later, he's going to elaborate more on this day as part of his discourse in the upper room during the Last Supper. And then finally, we get the full details on what this day is like from the Apostle Paul in two primary passages in the New Testament. We'll study those in his letters as well. Now, this is primarily a study of the Gospel of Matthew, obviously, so we're gonna concentrate on what Jesus gives us here. But because we wanna get a full understanding of this day, and frankly, because it's so important that the church understand this day, we will take a little time to go to those other places in a coming week or two. We're gonna look at this day in three parts altogether, beginning with the circumstances that will surround this day. That's what we've started with. And then secondly, we're gonna look at the details of this day, of how it happens, who it's about, and so on. And then finally, we're gonna look at the purpose of it. Why does God even have this day planned in the course of the end times events? Let's continue, though, with our study of the circumstances. That's where we started last time. That was in a passage that we looked at in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36 through verse 39. I read that last time. Let's reread it today. It's been a little while. So let's remember what we studied 
Verse 36, Jesus says, But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. That's what we read last week, and if you remember, Jesus referred to this new event as that day, and he did so to distinguish it from all of the previous events he had just described in this discourse. And there were several unique aspects about this day, most especially what he says in verse 36, that this is a day that will have no warning signs whatsoever. And that was very different from the previous things he described in this discourse. All of the previous events that he has so far described, they all had multiple warning signs, and that's how we know that he has now transitioned into talking about something completely different, something that is new and not what he had already described earlier in this chapter. And then as he moved forward in verses 37 through 39, he gives us a point of reference, an event back in history that's intended to help us understand the circumstances surrounding this future day when it comes. He said the arrival of this day will be just like the days of Noah before the flood came. I want you to notice Jesus said just like, or in Greek it could also be as like. In other words, just as things were in Noah's day, they will be again in the days leading up to the coming of the Lord. And that means he's expecting us to make that comparison. He's expecting us to dissect the circumstances of Noah and look for parallels to what we see in the world uh, at the time of the coming of the Lord. So let's do that. Let's start making some of those comparisons. In fact, we started that last time, if you remember. We said, as Jesus reminds us here, Noah's day involved people living an ordinary life, a, a, a normal, optimistic life, looking forward to the future, Jesus said, eating, drinking, and giving into marriage, and so on. They were oblivious at that time to the approaching flood that would soon bring God's judgment upon them. So that tells us that the coming of the Lord will take place in an age when judgment is fast approaching and the world doesn't see it. That's one comparison we already made. You know, what's ironic is the Bible actually says that the world should have learned something from Noah's experience so that they would know that an end was coming. You may know in 2 Peter chapter 3, there's a passage in which Peter tells us this very idea. 2 Peter 3, 3, Peter says, Knowing this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of the creation. When they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So Peter says that in the last days, you'll be in a place in a world in which people are mocking the very notion of judgment day, uh, of the idea that Jesus is ever going to come back. And Peter says they ought to know better. They ought to remember Noah's story. That is, they should remember that if God could bring judgment upon the ungodly without notice, using a flood, well then, he could do it again, and he will. The second thing we learn from Noah's story 
is that Noah and his family did know that a judgment was coming. Even though the world was ignorant, God's people were not ignorant. They knew it was coming, and as a result, they took on preparations. They didn't know the exact day, they didn't know the exact hour, but they knew enough to get prepared. In fact, the Lord told them to get prepared by building an ark. So you have the world oblivious to their fate, and you have God's people knowing the judgment is coming and preparing to escape it in a way that God provides through the safety of the ark in the case of Noah. And that offers us another comparison to our day, that in the last days before this coming of the Lord that Jesus is talking about, while the world will be oblivious to its pending fate, believers will be on notice. They will know that the end of the world is, in fact, coming. Because remember, we were given signs to watch for. That's what we've been studying in this chapter. And we can see those signs happening even now. And as a result, we too should be preparing for our escape. Now, of course, God has not asked us to go build a giant boat, but that's because he doesn't plan to flood the earth again with water. Peter told us that this second judgment won't be by water. It'll be by fire, which is a way of describing an aspect of what we'll see coming in tribulation and beyond. So we have been asked to prepare for our coming escape in different ways. And Jesus describes those ways in chapter 25. So we're gonna hold off on that until we get there, but it's enough to know right now that we have this comparison of the world ignorant, the church knowing, and as a result of what we know, there is things we should be doing. Thirdly, another point of comparison, we know that the days of Noah were evil. According to Genesis, in Genesis chapter six, we're told that in the days leading up to the flood, the world was utterly wicked and bent on self-destruction. Genesis describes it this way succinctly in one verse. Listen to this, Genesis 6, 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every intent of every human heart on all of the earth was only evil continually. I dare say you can't make a stronger statement than that. And what was worse about that time, if it could be worse, was that the evil of the world also included demons infiltrating and corrupting the human race in ways we can only imagine. We're told also in Genesis 6 that demons left their proper station to take human women and use them to produce an ungodly form of offspring. The product of this unholy union is a grotesque race of giant humans called Nephilim in the Bible. And they add to the depravity of the human race in that time. And so you have the wickedness of the world so great so persistent that it necessitated a flood. It was the only way God could cleanse the earth of the magnitude of the evil in Noah's day. And I want you to notice in verse 38, Jesus says life in the last days would be just like the days of Noah. People eating, drinking, giving into marriage, yes, all of that is true, all of that is a way of saying unaware of coming destruction, but when you heard that phrase earlier, eating, drinking, giving into marriage, I, I hope you didn't assume that that meant life was carefree, that it was wholesome, you know, like some 1950s sitcom or something, far from it. 
Those days are gonna be just like the days of Noah, and what that means in part is ungodly to an extreme and demonically influenced. Listen to Paul's description of this same period, this end times world that Jesus says will be like Noah. Paul describes it this way in 2 Timothy 3, verse one. He says, realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Paul's description of the last days is nothing like Leave it to Beaver or you know the Andy Griffith show. We're talking about the walking dead if you wanna make a comparison. We're talking about a world no one would wanna live in, but it's the world that everyone will live in. And there's certainly plenty of evidence in our world today that we're headed in that direction. Now as you hear what's in store for the last days and as you think about the comparison to Noah's time, uh, it wouldn't surprise me if you're left feeling a little depressed or maybe worried about your future. I mean, after all, we're still here. And even after we're gone, we'll have children here or grandchildren here for some time. And so as you think about what the Bible says the last days will be like, you might be left wondering, well, gee, I wish we could go back to the good old days. I wish uh, we could avoid these things. Or maybe you're just wondering, how long will we have to endure these things before we're rescued? How do I get through all of these things? Well, if that's what you're thinking right now, let me suggest to you that you're asking the wrong questions. You should be asking different questions. The question you should be asking yourself is, how do I make the most of this time and opportunity? And to find that answer, here again, let's go back to the story of Noah because it would be helpful to find out how Noah addressed his circumstances as the godly man living through his times. Because after all, Jesus said that's our example. So how did Noah deal with his circumstances? How did he make the most of his opportunity? How did he feel? Well, the answer is kind of depends. It depends on which way Noah was facing. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, if Noah turned his focus to the evil of the world that surrounded him, I think it's easy to imagine he probably lived in terror. He probably had dread and disgust at everything he saw. I mean, if you're watching the news these days and you're saying to yourself, well, I think we're living in days like Noah, let me tell you, friends, the truth of what Noah faced in his day is nothing like what we're facing even now. We have never known a world yet that is filled continually with evil hearts everywhere living together with demonic creatures among us. That, that has not happened yet. So we can't even imagine how bad things were in Noah's day. I mean, when Noah walked out of his home to whatever the local village was to trade for supplies or, or materials, or when he visited the local well to get water, what do you think he encountered? I think he probably took a risk every time he walked outside his home. He probably was watching his back for an attack at any time. He had to avert his eyes from gross immorality all around him. He probably slept with a weapon near his bed. He, he probably routinely had to run thieves off his property from the construction site. Look, I don't know what he did, but I know what we're told. And He was living in difficult times with a degree of evil unparalleled in anything we've seen on earth up to this point. And with what he would have seen around him, it would have weighed heavily 
on him. And you also have to remember that he spent the better part of 120 years, we're told, building this ark. That's 120 years of living under these circumstances. None of us have had to do that. That's a long time to suffer in a world of continually and only evil hearts everywhere. That's something that's almost unimaginable. So if he focused his attention on that sad state of affairs, I have no doubt he was worrying and he had anxiety and he had frustration and he had anger and all the rest. And I would also imagine that many of us are feeling some of those same things today as we look at what we see in our world. Even though our world isn't equal to Noah's yet, still we're fretting over the world becoming more lawless, over evil getting the upper hand. And perhaps there are days when you get up in the morning and you read the headlines and you just feel like going back to bed and throwing the covers over your head and wishing it would all just go away. Or maybe you're one of those people that responds by you know, angry posts on your Facebook page all day hoping to tell everyone what they need to know. Or maybe you join the protests in the street trying to make the world a better place. Look, I'm sure there were days when Noah and his family felt the desire to lecture the world about their sin or to fight against the depravity that was all around them. But you know what? That was not the mission God gave Noah. God didn't ask Noah to fix the world. God told Noah, I'm going to destroy the world. You need to build an ark. And building the ark was not merely a matter of personal preservation for Noah and his family. It was the way Noah was gonna save the world. Think about it for a minute. By building an ark, Noah ensured that he and his entire family would survive the flood, along with all the animals, obviously. And of course, if there had not been any animals, then the humanity couldn't have survived without them. So between his family and the animals, he was saving the world for a future, better place that God was about to prepare following judgment. And that is the irony here. The way Noah saves the world from evil the wicked world that was all around him, is by letting it be what it is and letting God take care of that. And meanwhile, he builds an ark. He prepares for what God told him is coming, which is why he needed to move his attention, his focus away from the world and toward the mission of building the ark. That's what Noah had to focus on. And if Noah put his attention there, on the ark and away from the world, suddenly everything makes sense. Suddenly, his day is a very different day. Building the ark gave his life meaning and purpose beyond anything he had ever known. I mean, think about it. Whatever Noah may have accomplished prior to the moment he started building the ark, no one even knows. Would you even know about Noah except that he built an ark? I mean, that's the defining moment of his life for good reason. Noah was a man who received a God-given mission in the midst of the saddest state humanity had ever known, which then just imparted greater urgency on his work. Every time he woke up in the morning, he could look out at the world and grow despair, uh, despairing or, or depressed or angry, or he could look at the construction site that he was involved in, and he could suddenly understand why that world needed this solution, and he had a reason to get out of bed every day. And when his eyes might one day catch glimpse of the world falling apart, it just gave him more urgency just gave him more reason to do what he's doing. That, friends, is to my suggestion for how we should see the world we live in today. Because even if the world isn't as bad as Noah's day yet, the circumstances certainly parallel. And if our days are evil to a degree, like Noah's, 
and you focus your attention on the world's deterioration, if you get up every morning concerned with what you see going on outside your window, then you too are gonna feel isolated and frightened and hopeless. And that's especially true under our current circumstances where everybody is largely confined to your home and not able to do the things you used to do and enjoy. And I know as a result, some of us feel lost or sidelined and we're passing our time now with things that we can do in our homes. We're spending our day watching cable news or Netflix or playing video games or whatever. Let me suggest to you, if that describes most of your day, then you're not taking advantage of the opportunity. You have abandoned the mission at its most critical time. I want you to imagine what would have happened if Noah had put his tools down at some point so he could catch up on all those episodes of Friends that he didn't see the first time around. Or uh, what if he threw his hands up in worry and, and decided, oh, this situation is hopeless and I can't cope with it anymore? Or what if he just decided, I'm just gonna wait this out. I'm just gonna hope it all kind of comes back to normal. Friends, when you live in the last days, there is no normal. Normal's gone. Whatever normal was, it isn't here anymore, and I'm not sure it's gonna come back. Oh yeah, the virus thing might go away. Okay, but what comes after that? You know, normal is relative. Get used to this, this is normal now. You need to take your eyes off of a crumbling world and fix them squarely on your mission, just as Noah focused his attention on the ark. And friends, just to be clear, our mission is not fixing this world. Our mission is not trying to fix something that God himself has just told us in his word he's going to destroy. And there are signs everywhere that it's coming soon. Judgment is around the corner. And knowing that, our mission then has to be to prepare to help people escape the world and prepare to enter the new one that is coming. I wanna say it this way to you. We are offering the world an ark, the ark of Jesus. And when someone enters that ark by faith, they too are rescued. That is your mission. And when you turn your attention away from the world's troubles and onto that mission, you will find purpose. Our work at times will be hard, yeah, but you know what, building an ark wasn't easy. In fact, I would suggest to you that that was probably the hardest thing Noah was ever called to do. And at the same time, the world's still gonna be evil. Our work in this fashion is not designed to stop the world's evil. And in fact, if you look around, it's gonna get worse. But you know, friends, like Noah, that's just motivation to keep working harder on the mission, to rescue all that more people. Every day, if you take this attitude, you will wake up knowing why God is working through you right now. As Paul says in Ephesians 5.16, you will be making the most of your time knowing that the days are evil. All right, we're gonna end our study on the circumstances of the coming day with just a few final comparisons, but I think you'll find these of particular interest, and they lead us into the next section. You know, when you go back to the story of the flood, shortly before the flood came upon the earth, God told Noah that it was time for him and his family to enter into the ark with all of the animals. But the way that that happened has some very interesting details. For example, in Genesis 7, 13, when that moment came, here's what God said. On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth and the sons of Noah and Noah's wives and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. You hear that? They entered the ark on the very same day. And not just them, the scripture goes on to say that the animals went in on that same day as well. And then in Genesis 7, 16, we're told that the Lord himself 
close that door. Everybody else was inside. There was no one to do it except God himself. He shuts this gigantic door supernaturally and seals it closed so that everyone who was inside was now prevented from leaving and everyone who was outside was prevented from entering. And then even more interesting than that, Noah and his family and those animals, they waited in the ark a full seven days before the flood came. Genesis 7, 7, we're told, then Noah and his sons and his wife and his wife's sons with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood. Then verse 10, it came about after seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. Now that's another interesting detail, right? They had to spend a full week waiting for the flood while inside the boat. Why not just be told to get in the boat the day before? Why seven days? Well, both of these details are telling us even more about the circumstances under which the day of this coming of the Lord will take place. First, just as Noah's family entered the ark prior to the flood, notice that, before the flood, not in the middle of the flood, not halfway into the flood, prior to the flood, they entered the ark. And in that same way, the coming of the Lord will happen before the coming of God's judgment. As in 2 Peter 2.9, we're told, God rescues the godly while keeping the unrighteous under punishment for a day of judgment. He knows how to separate the two and give each their own destiny. So our rescue will take place before the Lord moves to bring judgment on the earth. In fact, notice how Noah's family was safely in the ark for seven days before. Well, similarly, our rescue will precede God's judgment for a period of seven. Now, we know from prior study that The tribulation is a seven-year period on the earth. It's the last seven years of this age before the second coming of Christ, and at his second coming, he brings judgment. Paul told us in an earlier lesson, quoting him from one of his letters, that the Lord will come from heaven to rescue the church from the wrath to come. So Noah's seven days sitting in that ark before the floodwaters is a picture of our rescue happening seven years or so before the flood come, before the judgment of God comes on the earth. And then at the end of those seven years, Jesus returns, as you know, and we're with him, as I told you earlier, and the world is mourning at that moment because they are the ones under judgment, similar to the world mourning as the rain began to fall. And remember, when the judgment happens, we're with Jesus. We are witnesses to the judgment on earth at the second coming of Christ, although we are not caught up in it. Likewise, that's pictured by Noah because remember, Noah was on the earth in a boat watching the floodwaters come, watching the judgment hit the world, and yet he was safely in that ark. He could see it without it affecting him. And then lastly, just as everyone in Noah's day entered that ark on the same day, similarly, when it's time for the Lord to bring this day about, all who are in God's family will enter on the same day, in the same moment. No believer will be left out. We all experience the same rescue. All of us, not just all who are here on this day, but all who have ever been here will be a part of that moment. And on that day, the Lord will, quote, shut the door, so to speak. That is, none of those he comes to rescue will be lost, and likewise, no one else may enter. That moment will be a dividing line for all humanity, just as Noah's ark in his day made very clear who was being rescued and who was not. There will be two groups of humanity in this future moment. That is, those who are safely in the ark of Jesus and those then who are being rescued and those who are not in Jesus and will be left behind. 
And at that moment, there will be no going back, there will be no exceptions, there will be no appeals, and there will be no doubt who was protected and who was not. Now that fact and those comparisons lead us into the second part of this study, that is a study of the nature of this coming day, of the, of the way it will play out, who will it involve and how will it transpire. This will actually be the heart of our study, it's the part I'm sure you're probably most interested in, knowing how this will work, and that will take us over several lessons to complete. We'll just start it today, going forward a couple verses in Matthew 24, because Jesus moves now from the circumstances to the nature of this day. In verse 40, he says, then there will be two men in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, one will be left. Now that's not much, right? But thankfully there's more to come, but there's still something there we need to study. Jesus begins his explanation of the events of this future day that he's been talking about, focused on this dividing line concept that I just introduced from the times of Noah. This idea that there are people on the earth who are in two different camps and then when this day comes, that difference will be made clear. In verse 40, he illustrates how this day will unfold using the perspective of uh, two common everyday scenes of life in that time. First, he said there'd be two men out working in a field on a given day. What that should tell you is that on this future day, there'll be nothing about the day that would seem any different from any other day. These men are just out doing what they always do. I mean, if there'd been something about that day that was different or strange to them, then we would suppose they wouldn't have gone about their normal routine. But they do. They're just out and about. Today is like any other day. It's a Tuesday. Whatever that is, it's not a special day. Similarly, he says two women go to the mill to accomplish the daily grinding of bread, of, of wheat, and that, again, is just a normal everyday occurrence. So what this tells us is this day will be normal without any indication that things are about to change, and of course, that's perfectly consistent with what Jesus said earlier in this passage when he told us that no one knows the day or the hour. There are no warning signs. It will surprise everyone. It will even surprise those who are going to be caught up in the rescue. So this is a day that is planned, we can know that. It is a day that will proceed with a certain way and we'll know something about how, but we'll never know when. And then Jesus says instantly, one of those men and one of those women will be taken. But now if you look at the original Greek text here, the words that were written in Greek originally, there's a different sense implied and it's important to get that sense here. You could read verse 40 this way. Two men shall be in the field, one is received and the other is left. And that word received here is really important. Jesus, in fact, will use this same word later when he elaborates on this moment in the upper room during the Last Supper. That is, you're going to have someone receiving this person from the earth, leaving the other one behind. That specific language tells us this is a movement of the person. Not the death of the person. He's not describing how one person's dying and the other one is being left alone. No, he's talking about the movement of somebody, receiving them off of the earth. So one man and one woman under these scenarios will be removed, received. The other will be left behind, unaffected, as if still at work. Perhaps even not noticing the other one is gone, perhaps. This is similar in a way to the, the, the way Noah's life played out. If you remember, there was a moment when God said, okay, Noah, in the ark. And before that moment, Noah and his family were just another family amongst the population of the earth. I mean, people probably thought they were a little strange, building that giant boat and all, but 
from the standpoint of their associations, they were just part of the world, in the world, and so on. But the moment they went in that ship, the moment that door closed on them, at that point, they were no longer part of the world. At that point, they had disappeared out of sight, so to speak. The world could not reach them. They could not reach the world. They were gone. And in that moment, that distinction was made clear. That, Jesus says, is what our rescue is going to be like, this coming of the Lord. Now, even just this little bit opens up a ton of more questions. Right now, we're just ready to ask all kinds of things of Jesus. And as I said, he elaborates on this more, first in the Last Supper, and then through his apostle Paul in the letters that Paul wrote to Corinth and Thessalonica. We're going to get to that in a future week. But in the meantime, here's what I'm going to ask of you, because I need you to think about your situation now as much or more than you do about what happened in Noah's day. Every week from this point forward, for as long as we're all here, I'd like you to have this godly attitude that appreciates you're living in special days, the last days. Now, maybe it'll be like Noah. We've been put on notice and the flood is still 120 years away. Maybe the the end that we're all anticipating is still a long way off. Doesn't change your mission. You know, Noah couldn't wait until the last 10 years to start building the ark. He needed all 120 years. And whether we live out to the end of this age or whether we're simply here for a while before the end comes, either way, we're participating in the work of a mission that needs to be done every day between now and when the end comes. And let me suggest to you that remembering your mission and staying focused on your mission comes down to remembering five simple things, five things that we've learned together so far in the Olivet Discourse. First, we know that judgment is fast approaching because you can see the signs that Jesus told us to watch for. Friends, it's incontrovertible. The signs are there, we know what they mean, we know we're near the end. Secondly, we know God has planned a rescue for us because scripture says we will not experience the coming judgment, just as Noah and his family did not experience the flood. Thirdly, We know that as we await our rescue, the world around us is going to become increasingly evil. And as a result, we should not take uh, stock in that. Don't lose heart over that. Don't wring your hands over it. It's going to happen. You heard it here first from the Bible. The world's gonna get worse. It's okay. That's part of God's plan. Fourthly, we know we are to focus our attention on the mission of preparing for the next world not trying to preserve this one. And then lastly, we know that we serve God in a mission that he gave us, and we do this in the midst of the last days, and that should give us a greater urgency and, for that matter, a greater excitement about what it is we're here to do. So rather than being depressed or angry or discouraged by the days you live in, let that fill you with purpose and to a degree joy because you move your eyes off the world and onto Jesus and onto the people that he wants to rescue through the plan of the gospel and as you do that you start to realize I'm not on a ship that's going down I'm helping people into life rafts I'm doing work that is intended to make the best of this moment I'm not going to get caught up in the middle of it you know I would tell you today that the church is witnessing perhaps the single greatest opportunity that any of us have seen in our lifetimes to do the mission of the the gospel. I mean, you'd have to go back 100 years or more to find circumstances as dire as the ones we're dealing with now. A period of history when the very foundations of our society are crumbling, when evil appears to have 
the upper hand, where everybody is scared, normal life has completely changed, nothing seems stable. I mean, if you can't see God's handwriting on these circumstances, you're not looking. And therefore, this is the time when the church has perhaps its best opportunity to fulfill its mission. And friends, you cannot do that sitting on a couch playing Xbox or watching Netflix or surfing the web. Look, the web will surf itself. You don't need to worry about it, okay? We need to be about our father's business. We need to be building the ark and stuffing it with as many passengers as we can. And by building the ark, of course, I mean preaching the gospel, sharing the truth, being a witness in these dark times. That is the way you establish optimism and hope in your heart while looking at a world that's falling apart around you. This is the time you show confidence and peace and hope and joy when the world is filled with sorrow and distress and worry and sadness. I mean, this is what will draw people to the message of the gospel and to you personally. They will do as Peter says. They'll ask for defense for the hope that lies within you because they'll wonder, how are you facing this world in such an optimistic attitude? And why aren't you ranting on Facebook? And why aren't you lobbying your congressman for this or for that? I mean, you can do those things if you want. They're not sinful. That's fine. But don't make your life about that because that's not your mission. Fixing this world, solving this world is not our mission. Rescuing people out of this world, that's our mission. And I can't think of a better time in history for us to accomplish it. Let's do it together. Even as we're apart, let's work on this together. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the reminders of Scripture at such a pertinent time, and I thank you, Father, for the mission that makes our life purposeful in the midst of turmoil. I thank you that you, by your grace, have brought us into the family of God. I thank you for your mercy and rescue for those of us who are in the family of God. And I thank you, Father, for the future opportunities that you will give to those who seek them to rescue more people out of this fallen world. Give us, Father, the privilege, the joy of seeing rescues happen in our midst as we might share the gospel. And Father, help us take our eyes off of ourselves and our worry and to remove our distractions, whatever they may be, and give us, Father, the time to do the things you've called us to do and the heart to follow up and do them. Thank you, Lord, for all of these things, even before we've seen them, and I ask, Lord, that you would encourage us along this path so that we would not let the enemy draw us down by what we see around us in a world that's falling apart. Father, build our church, increase our numbers, Help us share this word with more so that we can do this mission better. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.